0: So, we're going to carry on in John. I know it's Advent, uh, and uh, we are going to follow kind of Advent themes if you're, if you're worried about that, but just looking around, I'm not seeing too much worry. Um, but we're going to—it is Advent, and we know it's Advent, but we're going to read the next part of John's Gospel. So, we're just at chapter 2. We've, uh, we've read John's prologue. We've thought about Jesus, uh, about John the Baptist, and about Jesus calling his first disciples. And we'll be thinking about John the Baptist actually next weekend again, um, because we're launching another painting. But today we're going to be thinking about um, Jesus' first miracle at Cana in Galilee, the miracle of turning water into wine. So John chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 to 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Amen. Over the next uh, few weeks, then the frenzy will intensify outside the doors of this building. And uh, I'm always quite entertained by the Christmas Eve frenzy when the gender balance shifts significantly. And it moves from being uh, uh, women who are quite clearly on top of their game and getting organized to guys who have that, that once a year harried, anxious expression on their face as they keep one eye on the clock and uh, chase down the shops before, uh, before things close. And so this is the first Sunday in Advent, as you know, and this is the beginning of the build-up. Ha-ha. The beginning of the build-up generally begins sometime in November. I don't know. How many people uh, have not yet seen a lit Christmas tree? Thought so? Uh, how many people? Let's take it back. How many saw your first Christmas tree? Now, we're not talking shop display. Okay, let's keep, this, let's, let's keep this domestic. How many of you saw a Christmas tree in a house window for the first time last week? Okay, how many two weeks ago? How many three weeks ago? Okay. Oh, one three weeks ago. All right. Okay. So there you go. Uh, we're already well into the season of Christmas or the expectation of Christmas, but we begin the season of Advent. And as we know, it's the season of uh, looking forward. Advent is a, it comes from a Latin word that means something is coming towards. The ad bit means towards, and the vent bit means coming. Something's coming. And of course, it's the, uh, it's the time when we remember, of course, the birth of Jesus, we know that. But this Sunday, the first Sunday in Advent, is traditionally and typically in the church the Sunday when we think about Jesus coming again, about the fact that Jesus did not just come once 2,000 years ago, end of, but He said He would come again. And our reading today, uh, you might think, has precisely zero to do with Jesus coming again, but I want to suggest that that's not the case. I want to suggest that actually what Jesus did in this miracle in, uh, in Cana in Galilee was precisely to do uh, with not the beginning of all things, although it was the beginning of his uh, first of his miracles, according to John. John's the only one who says that, and John's the only one who records this miracle. But John says this was his first miracle, and uh, It was the beginning of of a miraculous ministry that was focused more around uh, healing and casting out demons and and so on, but also spectacular other nature signs as well. The climax of the Christmas season, uh, because it'll take me a long time to realize this, but Christmas reaches its climax on the 25th of December, but actually, Advent and Christmas are so bound up now that Christmas is pretty much now. It occurred to me about three years that on Christmas Day, that's when Christmas finishes. It's the day when it reaches its climax, but you know when you go out on Boxing Day, maybe, okay, I'll give you till the 27th or the 28th. How long is it before the decorations start looking a little bit tired? How long is it till you start looking at Christmas displays and think, yeah, we're over that now. Yeah, we're past that now. And that Christmas Day... Uh, is for many, but not for all, by any manner, means a day when things reach the grand finale, the big climax. And where do they reach the big climax? Generally speaking, around a table, eating a Christmas meal together. Yes, there's presents and all sorts of other traditions, but the ta moment generally is the, the meal and the gathering of people. And that's what makes it poignant and challenging because we know that there are many, many people and especially in the city and in the city centre, very aware of the fact that there are many people for whom the the kind of the 1950s Christmas card with all the family you know gathered around the table holding hands ain't necessarily so. And so it's a painful time and a painful season. Meals are very often the focus for any special gathering that we have. Christmas, yes. Thanksgiving uh, is just. Uh, Past in the United States, and I suspect creeping incrementally in some places. Birthday celebrations, anniversaries, Passover, communion for the Jewish people, communion for the Christian church is a reflection on a meal, graduation meal, a retiral dinner. Any special occasion, we generally gather around the table and we eat something together as the climax and the expression of all of that. And one of the reasons why we eat together as a church is because Jesus eh, often gathered around food and because this passage that we looked at today and what we are all invited to look forward to, certainly according to, uh, to the book of Revelation, is a climactic moment when there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The point where at the end of all things, and in another sense the beginning of all things, the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, there comes this climactic moment where all of his people gather with Jesus and there's a a union and there's a coming together and there's a family meal of all God's people from all nations, from all time, from every language, tribe, tongue, every socioeconomic group, a coming together around food and a meal. Jesus is at a wedding with his mother and his family and his disciples, and we're not told how many he has at the moment. Uh, We do know that there's Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Nathaniel, and maybe those are the only six that John's referring to in this passage. But they come to this family meal, and it tells us, or John tells us that this is on the third day. Now, I don't know whether to read too much significance into the fact that it's on the third day, because when we hear the words on the third day as Christians, it means something, right? Because we know the third day is the day of resurrection. The third day is the day of triumph. The third day is the day of celebration. And so the third day is a day that is significant for us. And it just so happens, John tells us, that this event took place on the third day. And you can speculate till the cows come home whose wedding it was, whether it was a family member, was this a cousin of Jesus? Is that why Mary felt she had to take responsibility? Was it maybe a cousin who was getting married, and actually, maybe the fathers weren't there, and maybe Jesus, as the oldest son, was the male relative who had, if you like, the the, the responsibility? I don't know. We can guess and conjecture. But was this why Mary seemed to get involved? Because actually it fell somehow to her family. And clearly this is a big do. I don't imagine that there were too many weddings that took place amongst ordinary peasant people who were living off the land, living hand to mouth, living under Roman rule and occupation that could actually afford to employ a master of the banquet. Now, depending on how much money you throw at a wedding... Uh, You know, you might well employ whatever the equivalent is of a master of the banquet. Generally, in weddings that I've been to, and as a minister, you end up going to a lot of people's weddings. And that's very nice. Nice. And some people employ, uh, you know, they have wedding planners. And then when you get to the venue, there's the person who's emceeing the whole thing and who announces that the bridal party are coming in and tells you when to stand and sit, announces the speeches, emcees the whole thing, and makes sure that it all flows. So there's a master or often a mistress of the banquet. But you have to pay extra for one of them. You have to pay extra. And so, for one reason or another, Jesus is given this responsibility. Why? Why is this such a big deal? Well, in Jewish custom, it was the groom's responsibility, I know, and typically or traditionally in, in, uh, in our Western custom, it, it, it used to be it was the bride's family who laid on the wedding, uh, or who played certainly for the reception, and the groom's family would pick up maybe other things, cars, flowers, photographer. Now, of course, there's all sorts of arrangements, and sometimes it's just that the bride and groom pay, you know, themselves, or everybody chips in. There's other arrangements. In Hebrew custom, it was the groom's responsibility to lay on the reception, and in the same way that if 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 you laid on a big meal for people, and you hadn't done the maths, and stuff started to run out, particularly wine, you would be mortified. Like, you'll be mortified, Anna, wouldn't you, if stuff run out next year? Anna's getting married next year. Let's just all embarrass Anna for a moment. In fact, where's Adam? I can't see where he is. Oh, he's, where is he? He's over there. All right. Okay, that's a bit worrying, but anyway. (laughs) But if you're at a wedding or you're organizing a wedding, the last thing you want to happen is for stuff to run out. I mean, there's a point where stuff's going to run out, of course, by the end of the evening. But, you know, if you're just at the the kind of first round of drinks stage and you've run out, that's embarrassing. Not only that, it's an indication in a culture where families coming together, this is not just about boy meets girl. You know, this may be an arranged marriage. And this may be a negotiated thing. There'll have been probably a bride price, a dowry. And so there's a a whole cultural context here of families coming together. And so if the groom can't lay on enough for all the guests at the wedding, is he going to be able to provide for the girl? This is, you know, humiliation stuff. And so Mary brings what is a very serious cultural issue to Jesus perhaps because he's close enough in the family ranking to have some responsibility. And Jesus says what seems like an absolutely brusque, harsh rebuff to his mother, Woman, why do you involve me? Actually, what he says is, if we translated it literally, it wouldn't make much sense. He says, Woman, what to you and to me? What to you and to me? Which seems like a, a, a pretty rude knockback to your own mother. That's like, you know, she's a Jewish mother. That's a clip round the ear right there. So why is Jesus speaking back to his mother? My hour has not yet come. Well, let's just take a step back. What is Mary's perspective in this situation? We're told this is Jesus' first miracle, Right? So it's not like she's seen him turning water into wine in the kitchen at home. It's not like she has evidence of Jesus being able to perform creation miracles to deal with this situation. So she has no evidence, if this is his first miracle, that Jesus has been performing miracles and has the capacity to fix a situation that really only a large sum of money and a quick dash to the shops is going to fix And yet, somehow, she has enough confidence and certainty in Jesus, without having seen Him fix a problem like this before, to be able to trust Him with it. So, how about you? Because it may well be that in your life or in my life, there is stuff going on that we've no actual record in the Gospels of Jesus being able to do anything about And at one level, Mary had no reason to ask Jesus except she knew without checking up or checking in, she handed the situation over to Jesus, who appears to knock her back. But then, undeterred, she goes to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. So despite what he says, she has an expectation and an understanding that he heard her. You know there are so many beautiful instances in the scriptures. The one that always comes to my mind is the Syrophoenician woman, where people asked for Jesus, for things from Jesus, and he appears to knock them back, and they press on, and they ask nonetheless. She's asking the Syrophoenician woman for her daughter to be delivered of a demon. And Jesus says, is it right to take the children's bread, i.e. the Jewish people? This woman was Gentile, not Jewish. Is it right to take the children's bread, the Jewish people's bread, and toss it to their dogs? And dogs was a, 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 an expression for the Gentile people. I mean, you could take offense at that. You could just flounce off right there and yet she said, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs under the table. So she accepted what he said, and she came back at him. And Jesus effectively said, good answer. And her daughter was cured. And so Mary brings this issue in and gets this knockback. back. What to me and to you? Okay, so what to Mary then? What to Mary was family embarrassment. What to Mary was uh, family responsibility. What to Mary was the situation right here, right now, at this wedding, where the wine's fast running out and there's too many people here. So Mary's perspective was absolutely horizontal. I'm just bothered about what's going on here and what the implications are and what the scandal and the shame are likely to be. What to Jesus was a vertical perspective. (coughs) Because now Jesus had embarked on his ministry. And Jesus' perspective was now not to do things just because it was family or community or his mother told him or it was the, 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 the kind of rescuing thing to do. Jesus is putting down a marker a marker which you would echo throughout the gospel, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what the Father gives me to say. A single-mindedness that said, I belong to my Father, and I am about my Father's business. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? It's quite a challenge for us because most of our lives get caught up in the horizontal We get caught up in the horizontal. And we want to do what Mary did, which is to bring God into our horizontal to fix stuff. To bring God into this domain of our work, our responsibilities, our relationships, our concerns, our fears, our health, our money, the area where we live and say, Lord, come and fix stuff in this place. And actually, sometimes what we need to learn is that He's called us to be part of the vertical. Cast all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you. Align your horizontal with the vertical, and don't imagine that you're just pulling God down as a genie out of a bottle to sort out your stuff, but actually He's called you to be part of His kingdom. He's called you to be part of His vertical, of what it is that the Father is doing and wants you to do. And so somehow His mother had the perspective that Jesus, despite the fact that he was now focused on doing what the Father wanted him to do, would still do something. And so we have this engagement with these six stone water jars. What are they for? Six stone water jars, well, we're told what they're for. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. When did you need water for ceremonial washing? Well, you needed water for ceremonial washing, before you eat. Now, at this stage, the wine is running out. So everyone's in and everyone's seated, right? So the meal's already well underway. And so the stage of the ceremonial washing is all done. So the jars, it seems, are empty because all the ceremonial water. And so if we are told that there's six jars with a capacity. Of uh, about 120 litres each. So, what's that? 720? Yes, am I right? Six twelves or seventy-two? Maths was never my strong suit. Then it's a big venue. You don't need six stone water jars with that much water in them, unless it's a banqueting hall. It's a big venue, right? But what does the water symbolise? The water symbolizes people's endeavors to make themselves clean and right with God. That's why they wash. Now, yeah, we know that there's public health stuff, you know. We all know it's a good thing to wash our hands before we eat. But this was not just basic hygiene. This was ritual. This was washing to be right with God. This was the the water by which people endeavored to demonstrate to god that they were uh, keepers of the law and that by their own uh, ritual observance and doing the right thing they would somehow endeavor to be right with god and before god and so these six stone jars if you like they kind of they represent all of our efforts to get it right People trying to keep themselves clean. People trying to make sure that somehow they are right with God. How's that going for you? Because I generally find that my best efforts to keep myself right with God fail at the first attempt. It was the whole uh, challenge of the law, why Jesus took the Pharisees to task and said, "You, You tie up heavy loads and you won't even lift a finger to help people. You make them jump through all these hoops and keep all these rules and regulations in the hope that they'll be right with God. But actually, you've missed something. God loves His people. God wants His people. And God wants to bring His people back into relationship with Him. And so Jesus takes something that symbolically represented people trying to get clean. And he tells them to go and fill the jars with water. Now, I reckon that even allowing for the fact that there may not have been 30 gallons, it says 20 to 30 gallons in old money, but even if you say it was 25 gallons, by my calculation, That is something like uh, 682 liters of water. Now, I did a little calculation. Because even if you were using a 5-liter bucket, a 5-liter bucket is a reasonable amount of water that you might carry. Now, they didn't have plastic buckets. They would be stone jars. So if you add in the weight of the jar, I reckon 5 liters is probably about as much water as you could carry in one go. We're not told where the water came from. Maybe there was a reservoir or a spring nearby. But what we tend to look at this bit and think, and lo, the the stone water jars were full. It's always the way with catering, right? Oh, look, this food just appeared. Oh, look, those dishes just washed themselves. Oh, it's a miracle. Those servants, even allowing for the fact there may have been a five-liter vessel to hand, And even assuming, let's say there were six servants, okay, who were detailed to go and fill these water jars. I reckon each servant had to make 20 trips with a five-liter bucket to fill those six stone water jars. That's a lot of water carrying. They didn't just pop up. That's a lot of water. Now, if I was the servant, what would I be thinking? I would be thinking uncharitable thoughts, possibly. I would be thinking, why are we filling the water jars again? Because everybody's washed. What is this for? You ever had the feeling that Jesus has called you to do something and it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever? Just bear the servants in mind. You know, sometimes... God's way is to call us to things that don't make any sense. Things that may be difficult, things that may be a hard season, because carrying, you know, 20 trips with a five-liter bucket, you know, I mean, it's just part of your job, right? Maybe gets you out of clearing the dishes. But it's still hard work, and above all, you know it makes no sense. and so. Sometimes, in my experience, you know, I found myself doing things in in life or in ministry and thought, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why I'm doing this, apart from faithfulness, apart from because I believe and know it's the right thing to do. But you see, what I never know is what Jesus is going to do with that challenging, difficult thing that perhaps makes no sense or seems just like mindless tedium because actually it's part of a thing that Jesus wants to do next, but I haven't seen that yet. It's part of a a chain of relationship, perhaps, that will be formed. It's part of the faithfulness that leads us to the day or the moment when there will be some kind of tipping point or breakthrough that could not and would not have happened if we hadn't persevered in the dark and the difficult places. You know, there are Sometimes, I certainly remember at university finding myself doing courses, sitting in philosophy of religion lectures at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, thinking, why? Just why? But it's the tedious road that leads you to the thing that he's called you to. And so they fill these jars to the brim. And then he tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, I wonder what they were thinking. I mean, I know they're slaves, and we think, well, they're just slaves. They do what they're told, right? But you see, I don't think that's how Jesus sees people. And actually, indeed, what Jesus did was to entrust to only the servants the privilege of knowing the secret of this miracle, not the secret of how He did it, But it was the servants. It was the ordinary people. It was the people who lived in these communities and towns and villages who'd got a decent job at a banqueting hall. It's all right, pay's not bad. It was those individual people who we never think anything about because we just think of the servants like robots. They just were asked to do a job and they went and did a job and the job was done. They're insignificant, right? Does Jesus think ordinary people are insignificant? Who did Jesus carry out most of his ministry amongst? The people that other people didn't see. The blind and the lame and the poor, the excluded, the lepers, the ordinary people. Now, not that he only dealt with them by no manner or means. And so they took some of this wine, and the master of the banquet tasted the water, and he didn't realize where it had come from, but the servants who'd drawn the water knew. They got to be in on what Jesus was doing. And so often we find that pattern replicated through Jesus' ministry. That actually, whilst the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders and the teachers and the important people who were so full of their own importance were blind to who Jesus might be, the ordinary people who knew a good thing when they saw it, or who knew a good thing when they saw it, making a difference in the lives of their blind, disabled, broken, diseased friends, they were going to hang with Jesus. They were going to hang with Jesus. The servants who'd drawn the water knew. And so he tastes the wine and calls the bridegroom aside. And this is the first time the bridegroom's featured. So as far as we know, the bridegroom, who may have been in some kind of state, of stress or anxiety because he knew that things were going badly wrong and he was about to get a very big red face in front of his wife's new family and half the community and everybody there. He calls the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. massive relief for the bridegroom, we assume, although he doesn't answer, except perhaps a massive sigh of relief. Does he know where the miracles come from? Does he know where the blessing has come from? Not as far as we know. So what does this tell us? It tells us, of course, that this was not just, you know, bulk, cheap. Vinegary wine, the kind of, you know, the kind of stuff that you might get on special in Tesco. But this was actually a high-end vintage, and masses of it, masses of it, you've saved the best till now. The bookends of Jesus' ministry. I find quite a number of bookends in Scripture I find Jesus' baptism and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son at the beginning of his teaching and miracle ministry, bookended by the transfiguration when a voice from a cloud said, this is my son whom I love at the end of his teaching ministry and at the beginning of his passion as he went to Jerusalem. I find bookends in Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where he says, if you are the Son of God. Book ended by the voices in the crowd as Jesus hung upon the cross, and Luke describes three different groups of people, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the thief on the, one of the thieves on the cross, saying effectively, if you are the Son of God, if you are the King of the Jews, save yourself and us. And so, a, a dual temptation at the beginning at the end a dual affirmation in the voice of God in His baptism and at the threshold of His crucifixion. And here, different bookends with a different perspective. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first miracle that He performed, and where would it find its partner? In the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you and I and all our brothers and sisters, the ones we like and the ones we don't, the ones we know and never will do, the ones we could talk to and the ones we can't, the ones from every time and place and space and generation, we will sit down at table with all of them and there will be more than enough. I love the fact that in the food miracles, we find abundance of three things. (laughs) We find this abundance of wine in the wedding in Cana. We find an abundance of bread, and an abundance of fish. (laughs) Bread, wine, and fish, they're pretty good, right? Pretty good symbols. Later on, we're going to share bread and wine, because the meal, the meal that was then, and the meal that will be to come, is punctuated and given to us in this little scaled-down symbolic form to remind us even today that you're invited to a banquet, that you're invited to know that Jesus came in order to go to the cross, that Jesus came in order to be obedient and only to do what the Father sent Him to do, which was to gather in His people and all who would hear and see who He was, what He'd done, who would recognize and believe that this was the Messiah, the promised one. And that all who would believe and come to Him, knowing their sinfulness, knowing their brokenness, knowing that no matter how much they washed these hands, they couldn't wash the inside And Jesus went to the cross in order that that which cannot be washed by us on the inside can be washed by Jesus, can be taken away and forgiven in Him. And so He gives us this little meal of bread and wine, which He has provided in abundance, not just in His earthly ministry, but provides in abundance for all His people— and says, take and eat. Remember how I broke bread and fed a vast crowd and there were 12 basketfuls left over. Enough for lots of other people. And when Jesus tasted or took the wine and gave it a special new meaning at the Last Supper, saying, this wine... Is like my blood, and he said, "I will not drink of it again until I taste it anew in the kingdom to come. the marriage supper of the lamb, and so a banquet with plenty of wine, a picnic with bread and fish, and the culmination of all of that abundance and plenty and provision." the invitation. You see, the climax of our Christmas is not the Christmas Day meal. As fine as that will be, I hope for most all of you. But the culmination will find its expression not at the return of Jesus, because the return of Jesus is the beginning of the in-gathering. The climax is the meal. (laughs) And so at the beginning of Advent, we remind ourselves that something is coming. An invitation to a meal at which there will be plenty room for plenty people because Jesus has provided abundantly all that you needed and all that you do need and will need. And so, as we share communion, let me extend the invitation to those of you who have heard and said, Yes, Jesus. I believe that you are my Savior, my rescuer. I believe that you are the one who has come for me. I believe that as ordinary and insignificant as I am, you know who I am. Just like the servants were in on the miracle in a way that the other people, the important people, were not. That Jesus says to you, I know that you can't get your hands clean by your own effort, no matter how much you wash, but let me wash you. And Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It was a sign and a reminder of his need to keep on washing. Peter trying to refuse Jesus' washing of his feet. And he said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. but the washing that Jesus offers us is not with water from stone jars. It's a free gift of His grace in the same way that the ridiculous abundance of wine at this wedding was a free gift of grace, not a miserly enough, not a half-decent glass of wine, but a massive abundance, not an invitation to get blind drunk. You know, sometimes this passage has been terribly misused. Well, Jesus turned water into wine, therefore it's okay for. It's not the point. (laughs) The point is there's an invitation to receive the grace of God, the cleansing that Jesus died to offer you. It's an invitation to know that whatever challenges and tedium Whatever things we're caught up in that just seem to be problematic in the horizontal or something that we can't solve, well, can we involve Jesus? Can we remember to pray? Can we remember to know that just because there may not have been anything like you're going through in the Gospels, He's able to deal with situations as and when they arise, if we tell him about them and trust him with them. So as we come, the invitation stands to all who want to respond and say, yes, Jesus, I take you. I take you. I have believed in you, and so I take bread and wine as a sign and declaration to you and to others that I am a Christian, that I belong to Jesus, and that I receive inside by these signs of bread and wine the tokens of a promise that will find fulfillment when we will all gather at a tremendous celebration, the likes of which we can barely imagine. Let's pray together.